Hello and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. All right, Alan, well, we've covered the first half of the book of Mark in the previous podcast. Now we get to dive into part two. Well, part two is is great um, and different from part one. Part one has to do with the, the question of who is Jesus. And so the latter half of the book speaks to the meaning of Messiahship. Mm. You know, at this point, Jesus is now recognized as the Christ by Peter. Right. Which we call the great confession, of course. Who do people say that I am? This is who we, they say. Who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? What do you say? Mm-hmm. And Peter mm-hmm. says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the, the son of the living God. That's who you are. Now, at that point, Jesus then is going to tell them what that means. Uh, for example, one of, one of many examples, but, but one of the most powerful examples in my mind, is that up until this point, Jesus has never, ever mentioned the cross. He's never mentioned that he's come to suffer and to die. He has not mentioned it, not one iota, there is not one hint up to this point of a Savior who came to die. Hmm. But now, from here on, we're going to experience again and again, the cross is going to loom over all these pages right from the start to the beginning and so what we're doing is we're moving away from the who to the what in chapter 8 he called the multitude to himself with his disciples and he said to them now then whoever wants to come after me let him deny himself take up his cross follow me and you have now the reference to the way of the cross and he starts teaching what that is all about and so we, we learn what it means to be the Messiah. Mm. Because there was such a misconception of what that meant. And when he announces that he's going to die, of course, Peter doesn't like that. Yeah, No, he doesn't. <laughs> and uh, Peter has just figured out who he really is. Yeah. Um, he, has, he now has eyes that can see and ears to hear. Yeah. And he's excited. He's enthusiastic, of course. But so why did Jesus rebuke Peter for what he'd said, what he did, for his reaction. Well, I mean, it's true that, you know, (laughs) I think Peter needs a third touch, you know. I mean, I I do, actually. I mean, I think we all need numerous touches in the course of our life. But the the reality was that while he recognized that Jesus really was the Christ, the Son of the living God, he didn't get it. He didn't understand what that means. It was too difficult for him. Mm-hmm. It was not the kind of Messiah. You see, the Messiah that people had built up was one who would come and rid the Jewish people of, of the Romans. Right. You know, he would be a military leader, just the way Moses was a military leader, just the way Cyrus was a military leader or a king. There was an expectation that, that the Messiah would come and rid whatever occupying force there was in the nation. But they didn't realize that, that Moses was not only a military leader, he was also a spiritual leader. And also the same is true for Cyrus. And so Jesus comes, not as a military leader, but he does come in continuity with the others as a spiritual leader. Mm-hmm. But they didn't get that, you see. So Jesus is outlining what it means, not only for Peter, but for us as well. And that's why, you know, he goes into this bit about what discipleship is all about. Yeah. You know, it's denying oneself, taking up one's cross and following. So you see, clearly the next portion of the book has to do with discipleship. 
And Jesus' message is authenticated by the Father in the story of the Transfiguration. Just the way at the beginning you had the descent of the dove, this authentication by the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And here you have in the Transfiguration the same voice from heaven saying the same thing, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. Peter didn't fully realize what it meant, what self-denial was, denying oneself, taking up one's cross, following. Peter wasn't listening. Jesus was teaching that to be a disciple meant a radical obedience. And in many ways, his cross was going to be the same as our cross, as the disciples' cross. Just as his cross was essential for salvation, taking up our cross would be essential for salvation. Just the way his cross involved radical obedience, so our cross would involve radical obedience. Just as his cross served human need, so our cross will serve human need. Just as he denied himself, we must deny ourselves. Just as he paid the sacrifice, we must take up the sacrificial cross and follow. And so when you have the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Chapter 9, verse 7. Peter wasn't listening. That's what I would affirm. He just didn't get it. Denying oneself is not selflessness. Self-denial is subjugating our desires when they conflict with God's will. There are good desires in life as there are evil desires in life. Those that are intrinsically good, those that are intrinsically evil. It is good that when we are in pain, we go and see a doctor. We, we want to avoid pain. We want to avoid injustice. We want to avoid embarrassment. We want to be accepted. We want to accept. Those are good things of themselves. Th those that are not so good are selfish ambition. You know, trying to make a reputation for yourself. Accumulating possessions for yourself. You talk about it being the what side of this book, but it almost feels more like the how, actually. Yeah, I mean, that's what discipleship is. I mean, it seems to me that if any man wants to be first, he shall be least of all mm -hmm. and a servant of all. Well, as we move to the end of the book, uh, any other significant matters that we should be seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, I, I mean, I think his teaching on discipleship is vital in these chapters. And he becomes the rabbi, if you will. He sits down like a rabbi does. He uses a child to, to talk about relationships, which is just amazing. And he talks about the different views of the kingdom how the first should become last and the last should become first. Now, that was kind of radical ideas. And he addresses the problems of what, of what it means to be a disciple. And, and he reels against those things. And, and you have the story of the rich young ruler, who, his motivation. You know, and it's really, most of this discipleship teaching is about motivation. For the, for the disciples, it was self-centeredness. That was their motivation. Mm -hmm. which, which was like the leaven of the Pharisees. And, and so the disciples were falling into the same problem. And, and the rich young ruler, his, his motivation was self-interest. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, there needs to be radical surgery. Better to cut your hand off and not be able to go into the kingdom. Don't be using people for your own ends. And then what he does, he takes this lovely illustration of a child. You see, a child really has no concern for prestige. That, that kind of comes later in our lives, you know, <laughs> when we get into high school and all the rest of it. But, you know, when you're a kid, you know, you just who cares. Yeah. You know, you just want to have friends. And he also uses in chapter 10, towards the end of the chapter, I love it, the blind beggar. A lovely story. So basically, 
what Jesus is doing. He's holding out two mentalities. And I find it fascinating, by the way. Let's see, in chapter 10, Jesus asks the same, exactly the same question in both instances. One, the question of James and John and the question of Jesus. It's exactly the same question. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. James and John, you remember the sons of Zebedee came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> and Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, grant us to sit on your right hand and your left hand when you come in glory. Now, that's one mentality, you see. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is, in verse 51, here's the blind man. And the people say to him, to the blind man, Jesus is calling you. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, listen carefully. What do you want me to do for you? Exactly the same question. Mark has done it very deliberately. You know? Mm -hmm. Jesus asks James and John, we want you to do something for us, Jesus. What is it you want me to do for you? Oh, we want, to, we want prestige. We want to be first. Right. And here's the blind man. The blind man comes and Jesus looks at him and he asks exactly the same question. What do you want me to do for you? And of course, the little blind man says, I want to be able to see. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And then you have in chapter 11, the triumphal entry, the victory of Christ as he is making his messianic claim that stems from Zechariah chapter 9. Behold, your king will come to you riding on a donkey. Um, so he's indicating the nature of his messiahship. And people recognize him as messiah. That's the fascinating thing, Mark points out. You know, they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they are actually recognizing him as messiah. And then, of course, following the triumphal entry, you have the cleansing of the temple and Jesus asserting his authority. This was the wrong place. The, the court of the Gentiles was meant to be a place for prayer. You have used it for exploitation. You, you make charges and you conspire to find fault in the animals that people bring so that the animals they bring for sacrifice are never good enough and you have to buy your animals. I mean, it's a disaster, if you will. And what is more, you know, he reels against exclusivism. This, this court was meant to accommodate all peoples, not just Jews. And then, of course, you have the, the cursing of the fig tree. If you take it out of context, it's the strangest thing, you know, because it wasn't even the season for the, the fig tree to be bearing figs. And so, you know, Jesus curses the fig tree. But you see, but, but again, Mark is, is, is juxtaposing it, is wending the story along with the story of the condemnation of the nation. So this is not a curse on the fig tree. This is a curse on the nation. They've missed the opportunity to become a messianic people. There's no fruit. And so, you know, that kind of brings chapter 11, you know, just leaves us kind of hanging there. And then in chapter 12, you have the challenge to the religious leaders. They question his authority. They try to get him on taxes. They try to question him on, on theology, on the, on the question of resurrection. So you have a contrast here between Jesus and the religious leaders, the scribes and the religious leaders, the widow and the religious leaders, all of them coming together. It's a study in contrast, if you will. And then building from it is this amazing parable that Jesus tells about the vine growers. Now, the thing that fascinates me about this parable is the verse that says that the religious leaders knew that he was telling the parable against them. Right. Because here was the vineyard, and the owner of the vineyard is God. The vineyard are, are God's people. The tenants are the religious leaders. The servants were the prophets that God sent. And the son, of course, is Jesus. 
So the ingredients of the parable is Jesus is telling the purpose for sending the Son, the need for the Son to come. And the interesting thing here is that when Jesus comes on the scene, and I find this fascinating, the tenants of the vineyard who are refusing to pay their rental, if you will, they recognize the Son. They say, look, here is the Son. Let's kill the Son. We've killed all the servants that have come. Let's not kill the Son, because if we kill the Son, the vineyard will be ours. So the tenants destroy the vineyard, and it is ultimately given to others. Mm. But it is that recognition that Jesus, I think, is telling those religious leaders that deep down they know exactly who he is. Yeah. But they're prepared to destroy the vineyard anyway. Absolutely an amazing parable. And the fact that they recognize that he's talking to them. Fascinating. They needed a second touch. Well, in that case, I think they probably needed a first touch. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, yes, indeed, indeed. Chapter 13 speaks of the end times. Is there anything to learn there? Yes. uh, The remaining chapters, actually, um, from 13 and following, are really kind of, uh, I would call them, essentially biographical in nature. Uh, In Mark 13, you have um, the setting is the temple. The question is, when, when when Jesus talks about the temple will be destroyed, they ask, well, when? What signs will we we have? And um, Jesus begins to answer them in verses 5 through 37. He gets to their motives, and there's there's a lot of exhortation in these words, you know, take heed, watch, you know, be prayerful. And then he makes makes it very clear that no one can pinpoint the end, very clear in verse 32, Mm -hmm. Uh, but we need always to be ready. All of this does not relate to the return of Christ. Some of it relates to the destruction of the temple. So that verses 5 through verse 23 would relate to the temple. And that, that was fulfilled in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. Verses 24 to 37 relates to the return of Christ. Because what we have is a significant change of pronoun. In the early part of the chapter, Jesus is saying, Take heed, they will deliver you up, and you will be beaten, and you will stand before governors, and they'll bring you to trial, and deliver you up, and before what you are to say, and you will be hated, but when you see the desolating sacrilege set up, so as you see, the reference always to you, 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 you. Yeah. But the interesting thing is, in verse 24, it changes. Listen carefully. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory. Interesting. So what I see him saying here is that they would not live to see the second coming. They would live to see the destruction of the temple, but not the second coming. Hmm. Yeah. And therefore biographical. Yes, yes. These are the final hours of the life of Jesus. So what you have here in the remaining chapters, uh, 14, 15, 16, you have a preparation for his death. You have the plot. You have um, 
the anointing of his feet, you have the betrayal of Judas, you have the Last Supper, you have the, uh, the prayer in Gethsemane, you have Christ's predictions, you have regarding Judas, regarding Peter um, denying him, regarding the disciples deserting him, uh, the crucifixion itself. You have the preparation on the part of the disciples with the Passover event and Gethsemane. And then, then the events leading up to his death, uh, which takes us from the end of chapter 14 into 15, in, uh, into chapter 15, where this, with his arrest, his trial before Pilate, uh, the release of Barabbas, the mocking of the crowd, the crucifixion, and indeed the reason why he was crucified. You know, you have the contribution of the Sanhedrin, of Judas Iscariot, uh, the false testimonies born against him, the blasphemy that he was accused of, and Pilate washing his hands. And then from the very end of chapter 15 into the first eight verses of chapter 16 where the book really ends, you have the women watching, you have the burial of Christ, you have the resurrection, you have the wonderful words of the centurion, you have the contribution of uh, Joseph Arimathea giving his grave, you have the stories of Mary and Magdalene, Salome. So all this is basically... Uh, biographical in, in nature. Pilate asking the question, what should I do to him who is called King of the Jews? And the, the response of the people. And, and basically, we, we come to understand why Jesus was crucified. We saw that opposition in the opposition to John the Baptizer, that his proclamation of the kingdom of God, and so on. The opposition that comes to him through the demonic powers, through the Pharisees at the height of his popularity. And, and so it continues throughout you know, all the things that we have that we've been looking at together, all the things he was accused of by the religious leaders, uh, the lifestyle that he was teaching that cut against the innate desires of people to, to live their own lives, uh, not to surrender, not to take up a cross, not to deny themselves. All these were reasons why he was put on the cross. But it was how he died that is related here that is as important as why he died. And, and it was how he died that prompted the Roman centurion to make his amazing confession. Because there are two confessions in Mark. One right in the middle, this great confession of Peter, you are the Christ. But let us not forget there was another one at the very end of the book when the Roman centurion, and remember Mark is writing to the Romans, and it's a Roman centurion who gazes up at the face of Jesus he was there watching him die. And as he looked at him, he was amazed. And he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Mm. And the book comes to a close. Mark has proved his point. He has placed in the mind of the reader the question, who is Jesus? And he answers it, in a wonderfully climactic way at the very end of the book, in the mouth of a pagan who declares this person to be the son of the living God. That's what I mean by biographical. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Alan, thank you. Another thought-provoking look at Scripture and a fascinating exploration of all that God illuminates for us through his word. If you want to go deeper still into the study of the book of Mark, Alan has done a wonderful six-part video series that you can find on thewordisout.com. Under the What We Do heading, you'll find video lessons. And inside there, you'll find these six wonderful videos. Now, on our next podcast, what are we looking forward to? 
I think it would be wonderful to go back to the wisdom books of the Old Testament. We've already covered Job and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. Mm-hmm. And one of the greatest and most beloved of all the books of the Bible is the book of Psalms. And I think it would be worth our while just to, to have a look at the Psalms to see how we might understand them better and how we might appreciate them more and how they can speak to us of things that will touch our hearts in a way that no other book in the Bible does. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be very, very interesting. Uh, So, all right, please be sure to come to us with your thoughts, your comments, your questions, either on our Facebook page or directly via email at podcast at thewordisout.com. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with our next podcast soon.